touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to respond to a listener request. This comes to us from Daniel via Facebook. Yes, he said, hi, guys, I've just listened to your episodes about Tesla. I wonder how would fully electric cars like Tesla compete with hydrogen-based cars like the coming Toyota model, uh, which is cheaper. Tesla is the only successful fully electric car so far. Isn't this a sign that this is not the right direction for Toyota to bet on hydrogen? Uh, it would be nice if at some point you could cover the hydrogen car and compare them with the electric ones. So we're going to do that, but we're going to go even further. We're going to describe everything about hydrogen and how it's being used in multiple ways. Uh, Yeah, because hydrogen is a really simple element with a huge amount of potential. Simplest element in the universe. One proton, one electron. That is it. Get yourself a proton, get yourself an electron, let them make friends. You've got hydrogen. So it's also the most abundant element in the universe. It's it's everywhere. This is the stuff that the sun fuses into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Bum, bum. Yeah, we had, uh, to, had to put that in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so it's technically fueling, well, everything, I yeah, suppose, once yeah. you've got it working in the sun. Yeah, yeah, pretty much everything on Earth, uh, life as we know it, exists because of hydrogen being built into helium in the sun. There are some exceptions, like you could look at some extremophiles in Earth where they're living off chemicals that are being produced by uh, uh, gases and things being released in deep undersea fissures. But most of life, the vast majority of it, depends at least in some part on light. Yes. And uh, hydrogen, although we have only known about its existence as an element for a relatively short period of time, has has been uh, kind of theorized about yeah, for a been, good minute. There have been people who have worked with what they called like they had various words for it inflammable air being a popular one because they realized, hey, there's this stuff that when you do things to other things happens. And then if you put a fire near it, it blows up. Uh, Right. Inflammable meaning flammable, meaning inflammable. Yes, exactly. Uh, Able to be set fire to. Right. And in this case, it's not just that it burns. It's explosive. Yes. So the word hydrogen is actually a combination of two words from Greek, hydro and genus, which uh, together mean Water forming. And once you know about hydrogen and you know what water is, it's H2O, it makes perfect sense. You got to have hydrogen or you don't have water. Of course, if you don't have oxygen, you still don't have water. And while this hydrogen stuff is everywhere, I mean, it's the most abundant element in the universe. It isn't often found on its lonesome. Uh, that's because it makes friends really easily. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the opposite of me. It actually gets real buddy buddy really fast and, and, and the buddies like it. See, I, I got half that equation. But anyway, hydrogen forms compounds readily, right? You get compounds in all sorts of stuff. You get water being a big example that hydrogen bonds with oxygen. You have water. Uh, you have lots of hydrocarbons. You've got, um, you even have occlusion, which is molecular condensation inside igneous rocks. The point is, is that it's, bound up with other stuff. It's not just out there on its own. So if we want to harvest hydrogen to use as fuel, you got to 
think a little outside the box. You can't just go to the the hydrogen store yeah, and buy it. Yeah, it doesn't grow on any hydrogen trees. No, you have to you have to do something to something else generally in order to get some of it. Exactly, which means you got to expend energy in order to get this fuel, and that's one of the things that's really important about any sort of fuel. It's not just hydrogen. We're talking about any kind of fuel where you're planning on getting energy out. If it requires you to put more energy into it, to get the fuel, then you're getting as a benefit of the fuel. It's a losing proposition. Uh, right. Although there are lots of different ways to to produce hydrogen. Um, you can use light to split water molecules. You can gasify biomass waste. You can even just kind of let a bunch of microbes do the work for you as part of their normal metabolism. Yeah. Um, but one of the most popular ones right now, anyway, what accounts for about 95 percent of the hydrogen in the United States is something called reforming in which carbon-based fuels like natural gas, typically methane, are reacted with steam at high pressures and temperatures. That produces hydrogen, a little bit of carbon dioxide, and carbon monoxide, that last of which is then reacted to produce more hydrogen and carbon dioxide. Um, you will note that, that both of these do produce greenhouse gases, so it's a little bit less friendly than something like electrolysis, yeah. although you have to pump a whole lot of energy into electrolysis. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah. Um, overall, reforming does have the potential to overall reduce our carbon footprint if it could provide the hydrogen for like a whole fleet of fuel cell vehicles. Right. That's one of the the big things about hydrogen. We'll talk about that in just a second, about how it does not give off greenhouse gases in ideal cases. Uh, keep in mind, we're talking ideal cases because yes. it all depends on how you're using the hydrogen. So, uh, yeah, I also read that there have been some studies of algae that give off hydrogen, mm -hmm. which, you know, if we were ever able to make an algae farm that was efficient enough, that would be a great way. But there are a lot of people who question whether or that that's practical. It may not ever be something that generates enough hydrogen for it to be worth the amount of effort it would take. Again, that sort of energy losing proposition. Idea. Sure. So uh, some other things about hydrogen. It has a low ignition energy. That means you don't have to apply a lot of energy to it to get it to ignite. That makes sense. You know, it doesn't take much to set it on fire, essentially, is what we're talking about here. Uh, it actually requires an order of magnitude less energy to ignite hydrogen than it does to ignite gasoline. Wow. Yeah. So that means... That I mean, because gasoline is pretty, pretty flammable. Pretty darn flammable. Yeah. Kids, let's not play with this stuff at home, shall we? Uh, or anywhere else, for that matter. Let's treat it like serious business. But... It's both a good and bad thing, right? Because hydrogen, since it's easy to ignite, means that you can easily implement that in an engine. Uh, it, it does it very efficiently. You don't have to spend a lot of energy to make it do what you want it to do. On the other hand, because it has such a low ignition point, it's also a challenge engineering-wise because if your engine gets hot enough, the engine itself could cause the hydrogen to ignite prematurely. And before it gets into the operative bits. Right. Yeah. And then it could make everything inoperative. Uh, you would get inoperative right quick. So that's, you know, that th there's a there's a good and bad side to this. If you can engineer your way around it, it can eventually be a benefit. Oh, sure. It technically has the highest energy output by weight of any fuel, um, though it is the lightest element. So that's kind of. Yeah, you kind of have obvious. to get a lot of it together, too. So it's because it's, it's not dense, you know, which uh, is something else we'll chat about. So. One of the reasons why we're even talking about hydrogen, one of the big ones, it's what we alluded to earlier, is the fact that the combustion is really clean, particularly if you're using hydrogen and pure oxygen as the mixture that goes into your engine. Uh, right, because then your output is going to be just energy and water. Yep. 
You get energy in the form of the power that you generate and some heat. Because, of course, we don't have any perfect systems where we don't lose some energy in the form of heat. Sure. But, yeah, the only other thing you get is water. You don't get anything else. And uh, this is when I when I talk about mixtures, we'll talk about combustion engines a little later, too. This is a typical thing where you mix together some fuel and some air to go into a combustion engine. Same sort of thing with hydrogen. You're not putting just pure hydrogen in. You're mixing it with some form of air, in this case, oxygen. However, that being said, most hydrogen combustion engines are not using pure oxygen to mix together to make the the combustible mixture. Mm -hmm. They're using air. So air has stuff in it besides oxygen. In fact, the primary component of our atmosphere is not oxygen. It's nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So one of the byproducts you get with using a hydrogen combustion engine that uses air is that you get some nitrous uh, oxides, nitrogen oxides, I should say, not nitrous oxides, which would be hilarious until you suffocated, but nitrogen oxides. Uh, that's a that's a pollutant. You don't want that. Um, and you can also get carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide if you get some oil seeping into the combustion chambers because uh, oxygen does or our atmosphere doesn't have like tons of carbon in it, but oil does. Right. So there are chances of having in a in a hydrogen combustion engine this kind of pollutants. Uh, you could get around that if you wanted to go with fuel cells, and we'll talk about those too. So. The amount of power that a hydrogen engine can generate is dependent upon a few different things. It depends upon the mix of air and fuel and how that fuel is injected into those combustion chambers in your engine. So theoretically, the maximum output of a hydrogen-based combustion engine using a premix method, this is where you have like a, a, a carburetor type situation that is mixing air and fuel together, mm-hmm. and then it goes into the combustion chamber. Uh, if you're using that method, theoretically, your maximum output is about 85% of the power generated in a comparable gasoline engine. So not as powerful, right? Mm-hmm. But if you were to take a direct injection approach, which mixes the fuel and air after the intake valve in the combustion chamber closes then the hydrogen-based engine can theoretically produce 15% more power than a gasoline engine. So you kind of have a 15% less in one way or 15% more the other way. Um, however, this is all based upon the idea that you're using exactly the amount of air you need to complete combustion. So you're using just the right mixture of air and just the right mixture of uh, hydrogen. But the downside of that is that you also produce more pollutants that way. Right. Uh, although, okay, so, so this is a complicated issue and the numbers on it are always going to be rough. But when you're talking about fuel efficiency, you, you need to use more gasoline in order to make an engine do the same amount of work than you would hydrogen. Yeah, exactly. Like you have this note about uh, gasoline vehicles operating at around 20% efficiency. What that means is that 20% of all the energy that's being generated is actually going to doing the thing you need it to do. The other 80% is being lost in some way or another. Sure, usually due to heat loss. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's the big one, especially with engines. I mean, engines generate lots and lots of heat. Mm-hmm. The the ideal of a fuel cell vehicle using hydrogen is closer to uh, 60% efficiency. Right. Um, for, for the record, electric cars may manage somewhere between 25 and 65% fuel efficiency, depending on where you get the electricity to recharge that battery. Right. And and if you want to be really technical, a fuel cell vehicle is kind of a subset of electric vehicles. Sure. It's just that it's an electric vehicle that you are refueling 
with hydrogen. Uh, rather than a closed battery system. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's a great point. And that's another thing that we have to take into consideration. Now, typically, if, if we're talking about, you know, I just mentioned about having just enough air and fuel to complete combustion and you get that, that crazy 115% of a gasoline power engine, mm-hmm. uh, but you produce more, more pollutants as well. Usually we're not using exactly the amount of air. Because no. we want to cut back on those pollutants. One of the big reasons we want to use hydrogen is, is to, to cut back on pollutants. So if we're producing more pollutants by making it really efficient, then we're like, well, we just kind of trade it off. That was a lot of money to yeah. not do any better. Exactly. So what we tend to see are engines that use about twice as much air as is actually required to complete combustion. Now, this reduces pollution, but it also reduces the output of the engine. Yeah, Sad trombone. Okay, so these are just trade-offs. This is the way the real world works. We have to sit there and say, okay, there's not a magic solution that is going to solve all the problems equally. We have to start making trade-offs. This is a pretty good one because you can you can enlarge the engine size and make up for a lot of it. Right. So if you make the hydrogen-based engine larger than a gasoline-based engine, you can kind of make up this this loss. Now that does of course mean you have to redesign vehicles around a larger engine. So I mean it's you know it's those domino effects, right? You could also include what's called a turbocharger or supercharger and you might wonder, "Hey, how do those work?" We'll do another episode cuz it's already going to be a long one for this <laughs> one. So we can't we can't sit there and uh and jump into that and hope to make it out alive cuz no one will kill us. The protective barrier is only so strong. Okay, so like we said hydrogen, not very dense. Uh, when you've got one proton and one electron, you don't expect it to be. Uh, nope. Uh, so it's, uh, in, at room temperature, it is a gas. Uh, getting enough hydrogen together in one place to be useful as a fuel takes a lot of work. And some of the easiest ways of storing it, like in extremely cold liquid form, aren't really practical for toting around in a consumer motor vehicle that might not want to incorporate a complex cooling system due to, you know, cost and weight. And space issues. So usually we end up having to figure out a way of pressurizing it under intense amounts of pressure. Now, that, of course, creates another safety issue. Anytime you have a compressed gas, it's under a lot of pressure. If you rupture that containment unit in some way, it goes completely. Yeah, you that's and then add on top of that, that the gas itself is inflammable and you've got the potential for really, really a bad day. Uh, which is why a lot of companies that have looked into using hydrogen as a fuel in one way or another, whether as a combustion engine fuel or whether as a fuel cell fuel, have put in a lot of research and development in safety for these hydrogen canisters or, you know, else they'll never be able to market it because it would just be too dangerous. Sure. So, Although some people argue that, I mean, gasoline tanks yeah, being driven around are also. That's a it's a good point. It's a fair point. I mean, we're, we've been relying on a technology that has a it, an inflammable fuel for more than a century. And, you know, although it's not quite as dangerous as movies make it out to be. I mean, it's not the, yeah. you know, where, where you you your car, uh, your car sways a bit and then explodes. Yes. Yeah. So if Michael Bay made cars, <laughs> no one would ever get in them. But. Fortunately, as far as I know, he has not made one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we, we've been making use of this hydrogen for a long time. And in fact, we, like Lauren said, we were kind of playing with this stuff before we even had any idea of what it was. We didn't really know about elements or even gases. So we're going to take you on a historical journey. And along this journey, we'll be explaining how some of this stuff works because we figured we'd, uh, kind of incorporate both the history and the technical stuff. Altogether, it's an experiment. 
Now, before we jump into the Wayback Machine, because I know all you guys have been missing it, Lauren's looking at me terrified. Yeah, Lauren, that's what that big thing is in the corner that we haven't been using. It's all dusty and stuff. Turns out it wasn't in Mongolia. It was just in a supply closet. So we're going to get in that in a second. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so we're back and we're ready to get into the Wayback Machine, which I know is going to sound absolutely amazing. I can't believe all the bells and whistles that indicate to you that we've actually traveled back in time because in truth, it's silent. But we have to give you some you know, way of knowing that that's what's happened. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, it's not it's not fun radio drama. Exactly. So uh, let's uh, let's just go ahead and get in now. Uh, over here, we've got the dial, which I'm going to set back to uh, early 17th century. You know, I don't know how it knows where I want it to go. It just does. But when is really tricky. All right. Let's just hit the button here. Here we are. 1625. It's uh. Glorious and smelly. So I want to introduce you to Johann Baptista van Helmont, who is the first person to describe hydrogen as a gas. Not only that, he's the first person to come up with the word gas to describe substances that have the qualities of a gas. He was thinking of stuff that is heavier than air or misty, or he was just trying to come up with like a a collective noun to call this stuff. He proposed gas and it stuck. So, uh, he goes on to make some more observations, which in a few decades get picked up by another person, a philosopher, a natural philosopher, and we'll chat about him. His name is uh, Robert Boyle. So between Robert Boyle and Johann, we have in 1650, Sir Theodore Turquet de Meyern, which I know I've uh, absolutely butchered, but he's Swiss. So, so I'm sure he's fine with it. Yeah, they the, the Swiss have a beautiful way with words that escapes the... Physical contortions my mouth can go through. So, uh, but he produced hydrogen and he called it inflammable air by combining iron with sulfuric acid. Now, uh, hydrogen is found in a lot of different compounds, including all the acids. Right. So if you are able to combine it with other stuff, usually that, that reaction you get by introducing a, an element into the acid uh, will re- release the hydrogen. Exactly. Uh, now, 1671, we get to that Irish philosopher I had mentioned, Robert Boyle. Now, he experimented with producing uh, hydrogen as well, and he was of the new philosophy movement. Now, this was a really interesting movement. It combined observations and experimentation with logical thinking to understand the world around him. So this is sort of a proto-scientist movement. It's before we really had the formal sciences. We This is when alchemy was starting to transform into chemistry, right? We had people who had made observations and calculations on things like physics, but it's now starting to actually take form into the sciences as we know them today. So he produced hydrogen by combining iron and various acids, and uh, that's how he started to take a look at this hydrogen gas. And he was um he was pretty pretty intelligent. He noticed that a gas's volume varies inversely with pressure. Uh, hence Boyle's law. Yeah, we named it after after him. He also uh believed in alchemy and transmutation. So he didn't get everything right. Oh, you know. Yeah. Lots of people today still believe in alchemy and transmutation, so Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll leave that for now. But yes, Boyle uh he he did a lot of work and a lot of his work inspired other people. So over the next several decades uh, lots of different uh, philosophers and then later chemists and scientists began to experiment with hydrogen gas. Uh, they didn't really give it a name yet, but they, they knew that the stuff would blow up if you exposed it to flame. 
So they they began to really study it further until we get to 1766. And now we get to go to England because that's where Henry Cavendish was. And he was the first to recognize hydrogen as a distinct substance. And he was also the first to describe the composition of water. You know, before that, everyone just said, it's wet. And if it gets cold, it gets hard. That's That was pretty much it. If it gets really hot, it gets cloudy. That's, you know, just that's where we were with science until <laughs> Cavendish came along. Okay, I might be exaggerating a little, but he absolutely loved learning for he, learning's sake. He wasn't actually a scientist per se, though, was he? No, not really. I mean, he was he was more like just obsessed. He was one of the wealthiest men in all of Europe. He had inherited a crazy sum of money. And he chose to live very frugally in London. He he wasn't interested in the trappings of wealth. He wasn't interested in ostentation. He was actually, a, a, according to one thing I read, the only reason we even have a sketch of him is because an artist surreptitiously drew one while at a gathering, <laughs> a small private gathering at his house, because he didn't, he, he didn't, you know, want, he, he didn't, he didn't sit for a portrait. Super he wasn't, introvert, yeah. super huh. introvert. And he didn't really publish most of his work. Uh, he published some of it, but not all of it. So, because he wasn't really interested in that. He no, didn't. he just wanted to know how the world works. He was just fascinated with learning. He wasn't not necessarily as fascinated with teaching, but he was definitely uh, fascinated with learning. I, w- I want someone to make a awkward action hero movie about this guy. Yeah, I have a feeling that we'd have to invent a lot of uh, uh, facts about his life, which makes it even better. Yeah, that's what movies generally do anyway. I'd be less offended if I knew less about the history of the actual guy. So Yeah, I think Henry Cavendish supervillain would be an awesome movie. So I'll, I'll get to work on that. Yes. All right. Then we move to 1783 when Jacques Charles makes the, his first flight in his balloon La Charlière, which used hydrogen as its uh, lifting agent because hydrogen's lighter than atmosphere. So if you get enough of it together, the, the buoyancy will counteract gravity and then you'll float right off the ground. Go up. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in 1800, William Nicholson and Anthony Carlyle described the process of electrolysis in which electricity is applied to water to break its molecules down into their constituents, uh, being oxygen and hydrogen. This will become important later. Yeah. But just understanding that, hey, this process where hydrogen and oxygen gets together to make water is reversible if you just pour energy into it. That's pretty cool. Uh, 1806, we have Francois Isaac de Rivaz, a Swiss inventor. He built the de Rivaz engine. And again, I apologize if I'm absolutely butchering that. But this was the first internal combustion engine to use hydrogen and oxygen as a fuel. It would be nearly 65 years before you'd get the first gasoline-powered internal combustion engine. So actually, hydrogen combustible engines predate gas. By so, a bunch, yeah. By, yeah, by quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, we've talked a lot about how electric cars are older than you think. So are hydrogen combustion engine cars. So that's kind of cool. Then in 1820, we have the Reverend W. Cecil, who writes a paper. And I love this title. Here we go. On the application of hydrogen gas to produce a moving power in machinery with a description of an engine which is moved by pressure of the atmosphere upon a vacuum caused by explosions of hydrogen gas and atmospheric air. I think it's succinct. Pretty much you've read the whole article. Just by the title. <laughs> but yeah, he, he proposed an engine using hydrogen as the, the combustible material, but it's a different style of combustion engine than what we see today. So his design involved having a chamber that you would fill with hydrogen plus uh, regular old air, 
and it would be connected to a valve so that you could uh, insert this stuff, but it wouldn't escape back out. Okay. Uh, and then the you would in, put a flame in there, and then you'd have the valve switched so it would allow it to escape again, right? You put the flame in. This causes the gas to expand rapidly. Uh, and normally in our combustion engines, we use that as a pushing force. But at this case, the, the piston in this chamber is all the way out already. So it can't be pushed further out. So he's not using it as a pushing force. Instead, once that gas starts to cool and is released, it starts to shrink down. It's not, and he's not letting more air in there to replace it. And the valve is closed, so it's pulling the piston back in, in that vacuum that's created in the chamber. Exactly. It's a partial vacuum, an imperfect vacuum. And that creates an area of low pressure. That low pressure pulls on the piston, which then moves to the other end of the combustion chamber. So you're using this vacuum engine. Now, it worked, but uh, it's not really practical. So this particular design wasn't widely implemented. Uh, but it does, in fact, work. The, the principles are all sound. So then you had a lot more experimentation following with hydrogen which included everything from inventors to chemists to physicists and regular old crazy people. And uh, all of this is leading up to some pretty cool stuff, including the first fuel cell. But here's the thing, guys. There's a lot more to cover here. We've got fuel cells to talk about. We have other combustion engines to talk about. We've got uh, exactly how hydrogen is going to be used today, how it's how it's being used right now and how it will be used in the future. And in fact, it's so much stuff, we've decided we're going to split this sucker up. We're going to do a second episode so we can really do this justice and dig in here. So, guys, since we're splitting this up, it's now time for me to ask you that special question. Hey, do you have something you want us to talk about? Let us know, because if you don't, we're just going to keep talking about whatever we want to talk about, which may or may not be what you want to hear. So let us know by sending us an email. A lot of you have responded already when we asked if you wanted to hear more about how to truly surf the web as anonymously and as secure as you possibly can. We've heard you. We've added it to our list, and we're going to be doing that episode. But if you have another idea, send it in. Let us know. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three of those is techstuffhsw. And if you're not following us, you should probably do that, because Lauren and I both share lots of stuff you never hear on the podcasts that are either amazing, entertaining, or wackadoodle weird. So send in your ideas, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 